Lots of channels, nothing to watch, especially if you're searching for the truth. It's time to interrupt your regularly scheduled programs with something actually worth watching. Salem News Channel, straightforward, unfiltered, with in-depth insight and analysis from the greatest collection of conservative minds like Hugh Hewitt, Mike Gallagher, Sebastian Gorka, and more. Find truth. Watch 24-7 on SNC.TV and on Local Now, Channel 525. Welcome to another episode of the Michelle Tafoya podcast coming to you from my childhood home this week. And please subscribe, like all the rest. Today, we have a vacant speakership in Washington, D.C. Kevin McCarthy was ousted. What's going to happen next? Ned Ryan is a major voice, a major player in the conservative movement. He's going to talk to us next. It's time for the Michelle Tafoya podcast. So I've seen Ned Ryan speak. I've never met him. Uh, He seems to make a lot of sense. He knows what's going on in American government. And he and I don't agree on everything. But that's what I like about having Ned Ryan on. We can talk this through. But he definitely has something to say about the situation in which we find ourselves here in America. Kevin McCarthy out as Speaker of the House, meaning nothing can get done in Congress until they settle a new speaker in. Who will that be? What does Ned Ryan think? That and a lot more, including Trump, who he still backs. And I don't know, it's starting to look more and more inevitable. We shall see. We'll talk to Ned Ryan in a minute. But first, are you losing your hair? Is it thinning? Are you worried? Does it run in the family? Look, don't think you're alone because there are millions of American men and women who are right in the same ballpark as you are. But finally, there's a real solution that delivers on what it promises without chemicals, without harsh side effects, without unpleasant smells. And it's called Provia. And it's brought to us by the good folks that developed GenuCell skincare, which I used uh, religiously. Provia uses a safe, natural ingredient, Procapil, to effectively target the three main causes of premature hair thinning and loss by supporting healthy scalp circulation, the delivery of nourishing nutrients, and healthy hair follicle anchoring to your scalp. Provia guarantees more hair on your head than in the drain or in your comb. This is effective for men and women of any age. Uh, It's safe on colored hair, styled hair, treated hair. It's really that simple. And right now, new customers save over 50% off Provia's introductory package on proviahair.com, P-R-O-V-I-A hair dot com slash Michelle. Every package includes a full 60 day supply of Provia serum for daily use, plus Provia 30 super concentrate for faster, more noticeable results. Provia works guaranteed or a hundred percent of your money back. I mean, it's that simple. So get results for yourself right now. See what it can do for you. Don't wait. ProviaHair.com slash Michelle, P-R-O-V-I-A hair.com slash Michelle with one L proviahair.com slash Michelle. Ned Ryan is going to join us to talk about this breaking news story in Washington. No speaker of the house. What the hell is going on? We'll discuss it next. Ned Ryan, welcome. I mentioned in the intro, you and I've never met. This is kind of, this is our first meeting. But I've, I've seen you other places and I've been impressed by what you stand for and what you have to say. But we can't get away from the fact. Let's do this first so people get a better idea. I like to have the guest describe him or herself 
in a few seconds so that people can understand <laughs> what you're really about. What is it that you do, Ned? So the easiest way to describe it, Michelle, and great to meet you. Uh, politics, uh, it's something that's been in the Ryan blood for a while. My, my dad ran for Congress, was in the House for 10 years, 96 to 2006. I graduated from the University of Kansas, Rock Chalk Jayhawk. <laughs> uh, came came back to D.C. in 2000 and thought I'll try politics for a couple of years. Uh, was in the White House for George W. Bush as a presidential writer. Uh, did some fundraising for my dad. And lo and behold, uh, 23 years later, I am still in the D.C. area, married to a wonderful woman, four kids, and started something called America Majority in 2008, which goes out and identifies and trains good men and women to run for state and local office. So we're, I'm a huge believer in school boards, county commissions, uh, city councils, state house, state senate, and, and getting good people involved. And what we do specifically with America Majority is, is give them the tools necessary to win, to get them in the place to implement the right policy. So something I've been doing the last 15 years. And and successfully as well. Now um, let's let's attack the elephant in the room first. You are a Trump supporter, yes? Yes, one hundred percent. Why? Uh, listen, I think I think he is the guy that actually understands what the real fight is in D.C. Uh, I, I I've described it, Michelle, that when the great outsider showed up, in which he announced he's running for president in twenty fifteen, he wins. Obviously, shocking the world. Yeah. He shows up in D.C., and I think his biggest crime, his biggest sin is that he rejected the premise of how D.C. runs. Uh, he operates under a constitutional republic mentality philosophy of I'm the duly elected president of the United States and republic all power flows from the people to their duly elected representatives to actually represent their interests and for them to make the decisions both domestically and on foreign policy. And that's that's Donald Trump's greatest sin of when he showed up in D.C. saying I'm the one that decides and the powers that be and how I think D.C. has worked really for the last 50 years said, no, we're the ones that decide. And you can call it the administrative state, the bureaucratic state. But they're the ones that think they truly decide how D.C. is to run specifically on the foreign policy front, but domestically as well. So the fact that Donald Trump rejects the premise, the fact that Donald Trump, I think, gets it again. He has the temerity, Michelle, to stand up and go call me crazy. But with an America first approach to governance, I think the American people should be first and last in all things. Are the trade deals benefiting the American people? Is our immigration, our southern border benefiting the American people? Are we doing things with the government funded by the people supposed to represent the people that actually benefits the people? And I would argue for decades, the American people have been an afterthought. And I, so I, I think I, Donald totally Trump is agree. the man. Well, that that's what I think people like about him. Let's uh, we are going to get to the speakership in a minute, but I, I, I want to drill down on this. So for those people, and I know many of them who don't like the idea of a Biden Trump rematch, but it, that looks like where we're heading at the moment. Right. OK. Right. And the reason they don't like it, for one, is that they don't like Trump as a human being. They find him despicable. They find him. I'll just sit with that word despicable as a as a human. And they can't tolerate that notion of him representing the people in the White House and across the global stage. To that, you say what? First of all, I have had this conversation with him in which I said, sometimes you can be your own worst enemy. He gets it on some levels. At the same time, Donald Trump is not changing at the age of 77. He's not going to change his behavior. Um, I would argue that if people are caught up with some mean tweets or now truth social, 
uh, and things like that and are losing the bigger picture of who's actually representing them on an economic, uh, in, in an economic way, worried about their future, worried about their kids' future, who's made the country more prosperous, safer, secure. If you're getting caught up on some of those things, I don't know what to tell you um, because that really to me is a shallow excuse to not vote your best interests in 2024, because I don't think you can make any strong arguments on any level that Bidenomics or anything else that Joe Biden has done is actually benefiting the people on any level. I, I think we can look at America right now and say, you're pretty spot on on that. I, 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 I actually, I remember the day that the election results came in and I thought, okay, we'll survive this. You know, it'll, it can't be that bad. And it has been, Far worse than anything I imagined. And a lot of it has to do with giving over so much power to what you call the administrative state, which I just don't think people realize, Ned. I don't think people realize uh, how much some of these sort of ancillary agencies are controlling our lives. They really are, Michelle. And, And I would argue this whole process began... 1912, presidential elections, 1912, Woodrow Wilson's elected, begins what I call the fourth branch of government, which is this administrative state, this massive bureaucracy. And I'll make this as quick as quick as possible. But the whole basis for this approach to governing is that you would have administrative state, massive bureaucracy filled with powerful unelected bureaucrats who are the so-called educated elite with applied science would somehow make this country a better place and advance us to a higher level as a country, as human beings, but they were unelected. The only separation that Woodrow Wilson and other progressives believed in was the separation of accountability from the administrative side of politics. They wanted politics and administration separated to really give these, these bureaucrats immense power and naively thinking that that power would not be abused. I'm, I'm a cynic on human nature. I'm a realist. You know, I'm a yeah, realist I, on human nature yeah. that, that we as human beings are imperfect human beings in an imperfect world. We're capable of great good. We're incapable of sustained good. And when we are given the ability to have great power, oftentimes we're going to do what we can, not what we should. That leads us to this point in which this bureaucracy is now enormous. I call it the American Leviathan in which we really can't even define the size of it. But these powerful bureaucrats are the ones that decide in many ways how it's going to actually domestic policy, foreign policy. And I'll leave it with this last point. To, to further this point, Congress will pass four or 5,000 page bills that kind of lay out a framework. And they do that and then send it to these various departments and agencies who then look through and they parse it out and they're the ones that in a very specific way decide how those bills will be applied to the American people's lives on a whole host of fronts. And the other thing that concerns me, Michelle, is that in this powerful administrative state, they wanted to break down the barriers, a fundamental aspect of our republic, separation of powers. A lot of these agencies are now operating under, we get to be executive, judicial, and legislative, which is not what the founders intended at all. And it leads to immense abuse of power. Wow. I. There is so much there. And, uh, you know, I, I would love to really delve into this with you sometime because I think I, I think people really, the, the average people, unless you're really paying attention, you that's don't see this happening. That is that, that's a major concern. It's I always call it the frog in the pot of the boiling water. We're all frogs. We're, we're you know, America started as this nice, nice pot of lukewarm water, but somebody decided to light a match and slowly turn up the heat and and kill off the freedoms you know, yes. death by a thousand cuts. And these thousand cuts are coming from people uh, we didn't necessarily elect, although those many of those whom we have elected, Ned, are not acting in our best interests either. They're giving no, they this power to the, the administrative state. 
They really are. And, and people have asked me, when do you think Congress specifically started abdicating their role in, in governing and actually representing the people in a real way of governance? And I would argue late 60s, early 70s. So it's truly been, I, I would argue, about 50 years since Congress, I think, has taken a very active and specific role in doing the actual governance of the country. And they've decided to delegate their authorities, which, by the way, is unconstitutional. All legislative powers are delegated to the representatives of the people. You cannot subdelegate to unelected bureaucrats. So I think there's some real fundamental issues on the constitutionality of it all. But it's something that's been accepted. And again, going back to, to why Trump, Trump rejects the premise that this in any way is legitimate on any level. It is a it is a fascinating time to be in America. And really yesterday, is. you know, yesterday, some history was made, Ned, and we, we've got to get to this. Kevin McCarthy was ousted. It seemed that this congressman named Matt Gates out of Florida has always had a beef with him. I don't yes. really know for sure. And I'm not sure anyone except those two men know for sure what that beef is all about. They couldn't be more different as humans. But right. Matt Gates formulated this movement to oust him, and the math worked in his favor. Um, what do you make of what the genesis of this is, was? So I would like to think that it's not deeply personal. So I'll deal with some of the bigger issues on, you know, some of the deals that were struck in January, again, with that gang of, I think it was a 13 or 20 to try and get Kevin McCarthy to actually represent, I would argue, represent more of the base. And one of the fundamental fundamental issues I've always had, Michelle, with Republican leadership in the House and the Senate for decades, I don't think Republican leadership in either of those chambers actually represents in a meaningful way the base. So you can deal with the debt ceiling uh, debate. You can deal with the immigration, all these things. The, the House has the power of the purse. And I think one of Gates's fundamental problems with McCarthy is you're not using the power of the purse to restrict the abuse of the Biden administration to stop certain things. Although in this last CR, there was no Ukrainian funding. You're not actually representing representing the priorities of the American people on a more personal issue. This is the this is the thing that I can't figure out in a real politic way. McCarthy's dealing with a four seat majority. He understands that. Probably Matt Gates again, as demonstrated in this vote, has five or six people that are going to go along with him, meaning that if he threatens he's going to put up a motion to vacate the seat, uh, he has the votes to do it. It became personal on a certain level based off some scuttlebutt. And again, I'd love to hear other people's perspective on this, that Kevin McCarthy was continuing an ethics investigation uh, allow, allowing an ethics investigation to go into Matt Gates that Matt Gates was felt felt was very. Uh, unfair, had right. no real basis, and felt that McCarthy was the one actually pushing it behind the scenes. So on a personal level, I think Gates decided he'd had enough, had the votes. And this has always been a conversation since January that if McCarthy does certain things, there are certain votes to be able to remove him and vacate the speakership. I have to tell you, I, I, I don't really feel that bad for Kevin McCarthy. I've never been a fan. Um, okay. so I kind of feel like he got what was coming to him at the same time. You've got to figure out who's going to be the next speaker, which is easier said than done. No question. And we've heard some names come up. We've heard, I've heard everyone from Byron Donalds to Tom Emmer to Steve Scalise. It'll be Scalise. Um, you think it'll be Scalise I, in spite I of the fact that it, he's got some health issues, right? He does. I, I just knowing how, how the house works how leadership works, it's almost going to be like, it's, it's his turn next. Again, is he going to be able to get the majority of the House 
uh, caucus to then say you're the one and then go on to the floor and keep all of those votes at home. At, at some point, I think it would probably be Steve Scalise. If I was to say in a horse race, who do I bet on? It'd probably be Steve Scalise, who again goes back to my fundamental point. I'm not really sure how much he represents the interests and priorities of the Republican base, but it is what it is because we all know, having been, had a, a father that was in the House, a lot of times leadership in the House is not necessarily based off the voters, but have you raised enough money for the members? Have you gone out and actually helped them get elected? And then you have enough favors that are owed you that they will then vote for you to be the next speaker. It's kind of it's it's how it's worked, obviously, for decades and generations. I'm not think I don't think it's the best way that it works to actually represent the party, but it's how it works. You've repeated a term a number of times today, the the, the Republican base. Right. And you know, I, I I'd like I'd love to get your description of who what that base looks like, because I think people throughout the you know, what even independents probably aren't totally sure. Other people on the other side here, Republican base, and they want to set their hair on fire. So I'd love to hear from you who is very close to it. What is the Republican Republican base? What does it look like? Well, I think I think it's actually kind of a completely new demographic than what you would consider. And by Republican base, I let me back up a little bit. I think okay. the Republican base now is completely different because of Donald Trump. Donald Trump has brought in new voters to vote Republican specifically for Trump because of how he's approached, you know, domestic policy, whether it's manufacturing jobs, all of these things. I, I think he's brought in people that you would look at and go, they should never have voted Republican, yet they voted for Donald Trump. I would kind of consider some of those people, especially with Trump as the nominee, which I think he will be as part of that base. So I think it's it comes down to the fundamental issues of. What are we doing about jobs? What are we doing about manufacturing jobs? What are we doing about trade deals? What are we doing about the immigration? Yeah, yeah, right. Border Borders. Are we securing the border? Right yeah. What are we doing about crime? I mean, the, the, the thing that I tell people, first of all, to understand the base, understand that America first, in my mind, is just a really strong dose of common sense. What are we doing to actually address these existential issues to our culture and society? Is mass, massive, rapid demographic change through an unsecured border really what's best for the American people? Uh, is offshoring a lot of our jobs what's best for the American people? Signing terrible trade deals with foreign countries, is that great for American people? And so anybody that wants to have a common sense approach to getting back to prioritizing the American people is America first. And I would argue part of the Republican base now due to Donald Trump. When you hear Democrats use the term, as they love to do, uh, MAGA extremists or MAGA Republicans or MAGA extremist right. Republicans, how, you know, how effective is that messaging for them? Because it seems to me it kind of is. I, I think on some levels, I, I would not disagree that it probably hurts with some of the independent voters in the suburbs and battleground states. Like I'm a realist enough to know that there are voters who are not really fully paying attention to how DC works, what's going on in DC, what's happening. So they're going to hear some of these things on the news and go, well, this must be true. They haven't woken up to the fact that you probably should question most of the quote unquote news. So I think it can be, if, if not addressed correctly, can be damaging to, with independent voters in the suburbs. Uh, that all to say MAGA extremism, I would go back to, you need to actually come out and say, this is what America first is. If you think, that securing our borders, better trade deals, all these things is extreme. You might be the one that's actually extreme in this conversation. Yeah. 
Uh, they, many of the independents or the people on the left will point to the issue of abortion and, and say right. that, you know, women's rights are being taken away, et cetera. I thought in the first debate that Nikki Haley did a very good job of, of explaining why we need to moderate as Republicans on this issue. And I couldn't agree more. I, I know that there is a massive population of pro-lifers. But yes. I don't think, but I think most Americans think that on this spectrum, there is a place at which we can arrive that we can agree on. I, let me ask you this, though. Yeah. Do people not want to agree? Because this is a great fundraising issue. And if, if we agree and, so, and resolve it, no more fundraising. Uh, you, you would make an argument for me. I would agree with you. Uh, on a whole host of fronts in which it's really good for fundraising. It's good for highlighting certain people. They want to continue conflict on a variety of issues because it's yeah. good for them personally. Yeah. Um, so a cu couple things on, first of all, independent voters. I, I, I want to point out, even though I think some of the MAGA extremism can hurt Trump, there's, there's a recent poll from ABC Washington Post that shows him beating Biden by 13 points with independents. So do I think it can damage him? Yes. Do I think he's running strongly with independents who are looking past some of these political arguments to go, what are the real issues? I do. I consider myself very pro-life. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I would argue in a perfect world. And so let me say there's the perfect world and then there's the politics, real politics. Yeah. In a perfect world, I think we should have a conversation about heartbeat bills. Does that look six weeks, whatever that is. I think being a political realist, where we are probably going to settle and where I think most of the American people are is really where most of Europe is. 12 to 14 week bans. I think mm -hmm. a lot of the American people would look at that and go, hey, we think six weeks is too early. We think past 20 weeks kind of it's is, is way too far. Yeah. 12 to 14 weeks, I think, is probably where you're going to find most of the of the American people in that kind of common ground. So. I would not be surprised if sometime in the not too distant future, really that kind of becomes the consensus, whether I agree with it or not, mm -hmm. being a realist on the political front, that's where most of the people are. And I think that's probably where a lot of the Republicans are going to coalesce around and then can point to Democrats and say, sorry, late term abortions, wanting to have abortions up to the moment of birth. That's truly the extremist viewpoint on this issue. And it, yes. Yes. So that's that's where I think we are. And that's how I think a lot of people are starting to think about it at the same time where I am personally where the middle is maybe a little bit different. OK, I, I think it, it, it's this one is so frustrating to me because I think the messaging has been so bad, Ned. I, I just think, you know, I, I don't I mean, disagree. Right? No, I don't disagree. In fact, I was having this conversation with my father in law the other day in which I said, my concern on this, the life issue, the abortion issue, is that Republicans are going to be so intimidated by it that they will run away from it instead of actually making some of these arguments that I just made of, hey, we understand where you're at. This is where we think we should be. Um, and the real extremists in this whole debate are those that want to have late term up to the moment of birth abortions. You have to address it. This is the thing that concerns me in 2024, that they will not address it head on that they will be terrified by it, run away from it, and allow Democrats to dictate really the narrative of what's actually taking place on the right. issue, which that, I that think can't is a happen. terrible place to be. Yeah, no, that can't happen. I, I agree with that. This is a, a, It is a national conversation that has to be had, but it has to be had honestly, and it has to be had with respect to, to sort of everyone's opinions on this. Um, and then we discover really who the extremists are, as you said. Correct. Um, 
Okay. So you think it is going to be a Trump Biden rematch? Are you pretty, you feeling that that's, there's really no getting away from that? I, I, I really don't think we will see anything change between now and end of January, beginning of February. First of all, there are no legitimate contenders. Uh, inside of the Democratic primary. If you were going to see that happen, it would have happened months ago. There's no Gretchen well, Whitmer. There's no Gavin Newsom. About, uh, well, <laughs> right. Um, although I, I think have a few theories. Prime... Oh, let's hear your theories. Okay, so first of all, let me explain. There's a reason RFK Jr. is leaving the primary. He's going to run What is that reason? Yes, I wanted to get to this because he could play a spoiler. He could. I, you know, Some people are concerned. I do think he'll take some Trump votes. I think he will take more Biden votes. I think that he, according to a poll I saw, can pull in 15 to 17 percent of the vote that's, in the general election. That's I major. think that he I think he will probably take, according to this poll, six or seven more points from Biden than he would from Trump. Again, so that's not insignificant in a very closely contested election. Again, I remind people 2020 was really decided by about 42 to 43,000 votes between Wisconsin, Georgia and Arizona. <laughs> so right. it's a very tight race. You have this yep. dynamic. Don't forget Cornell West and the Green Party. Green Party has traditionally gotten two to three points generally. If you throw in RFK Jr. and Cornell West into the general election and Cornell West will not be pulling votes away from Donald Trump, I think it's a very interesting dynamic. That all to say, there's no legitimate primary uh, contender to Joe Biden. He will be the nominee, um, at least through the summer of 2024. And this is where my theory comes in. Does it become let's hear it. Does it become untenable? Let's face it, the trajectory on his health is not going to get better, whether it's his mental health, physical health. It's not getting better. The question is, does it rapidly accelerate into the abyss? So you've got that. The other question is, does it become such a a thing that Comer and these House Republicans have definitively proved beyond a shadow of a doubt that there was absolutely influence peddling that Joe Biden was 100 percent involved and had full knowledge of? If this starts to snowball into something, call it July of 2024, don't forget the DNC. The Democrats' elect uh, convention is August of 2024. My theory, now we're getting to my theory, does it become such a point they realize Biden cannot win a general that there's an approved floor revolt in which all of the delegates and superdelegates decide by acclamation, again, negotiating with Biden, it'll be Gavin Newsom or Michelle Obama that will be the general election candidate for Democrats that would barely, I think, meet the guidelines deadlines for printing of general election ballots for November of 2024. So my theory is, I think there's a legitimate chance that Joe Biden, even though he will be the Democrat nominee going into the summer of 2024, he might not come out into the fall of 2024 as actually being uh, their nominee. So at the convention, they could make this decision. You can't, you can't, they could do it. They could do it. I mean, the fact of the matter is in primaries, it, it, it's one of those things. It comes down to the floor vote, regardless of whether somebody's won these primaries. Again, a lot of the state rules say if, if you won a primary, you've won the delegates. They have to vote for you on the convention floor. But if it comes down to in the, on the Democratic convention floor, yeah, it could be done, actually. You mentioned Michelle Obama. Is that you really think that's a serious uh, consideration? I have to tell you, so let me, again, share some of my thinking on this. Gavin Newsom is obviously running, right? He wants he, yeah, he wants yes. this so badly, and he is putting himself in a position to actually be the successor. Kamala Harris is a bridge too far. I think mm-hmm. most people get that. There's no way that she can be the nominee. But the question I have, and the reason I keep on bringing up Michelle Obama, 
how do you tell a black woman, sorry, Kamala Harris, you cannot be the nominee and remove her for a white guy, Gavin Newsom. Uh, mm -hmm. So that's why I'm like, do you have to replace Kamala Harris with Michelle Obama? So that's why I keep on throwing out, is this a possibility? I have to tell you though, Michelle, even despite all of my theories and trying to think through how this would work out, Joe Biden is the incumbent. If they can keep him going and somehow keep that empty husk, you know, trotting along, you want to go with the incumbent. You cannot underestimate the power of incumbency, name ID, all of these things. They do not want to do that in August of 2024. That's only if it becomes completely untenable. Gotcha. Well, you know, uh, Sonny Hostin of The View says you can't just, you know, interchange a black woman for a black woman. So that great, that great intellectual mind. That <laughs> I'm sorry. I, you know, I, I no. Hey. I watch clips of The View. And I think this, this is, sorry, a bit of a cancer on American society in which they are injecting into American households really what I think is, is deeply troubling brain cell killing uh, views and thoughts. Well, I, I uh, appeared on that show a multitude of times um, and. Hopefully brought a dose of sanity and intelligence. <laughs> They would, uh, they, the rest of the, they would tell you, no, they would tell you that I was some sort of a crazy evil woman, but you know, it, it, it is, it is troubling to me. I mean, in all seriousness, I, no, no, I, that, that these are people that are educating or informing a lot of people that are watching them staying at home. And they think that somehow this is representative of, or this is how they should be thinking when in fact, yeah. Deeply, deeply so much troubling. of it is ill-informed. It's so very much of it is ill-informed. Uh, it's it's and very far left. It's tr yeah, yeah. It's troubling for me as well. Um, Can we talk Donald Trump? I, I do. Yeah. I just don't see you anybody beating him. I don't see anybody beating him. I mean, he's up so far. And forget the national polls. The reason I'm saying he'll probably be the nominee is you look at Iowa, you look at New Hampshire, you look at Nevada, you look at South Carolina. I think this could be over well before Super Tuesday. And if it's not over by Super Tuesday, which is March 5th, I think he will definitively be the nominee by March 6th uh, at that point because he will have won so many states like California, for example, in which it's winner take all. Such a massive chunk of delegates that by the time get to March 5th with the winner take all, if it's not over before then, Donald Trump will be the nominee. And I, I know for some people that's a little hard to accept that we're going to have a Joe Biden-Donald Trump rematch. Um, it's going to happen. I think you should prepare yourselves for that. The odds of it happening are pretty good. And I think Donald and Trump by, will win. And by then, it's like you said, it's a binary choice. Yep. It's, you know, I, I, you wonder about turnout at that point. But I do have a little anecdote for you. And then I want to get, don't let me forget this. I want to play a little parlor game and ask you who you think the vice president, uh, vice president he would pick <laughs> would be. But my little uh, anecdote is this, um, that I was b driving to the airport. I had a driver, uh, who said to me, I'm very left. He said, I'm a lefty, but I'm voting for Trump. And I said, yeah. really? Tell me why. And and he said kind of what you said at the get-go, that if both sides are so afraid of him, he must be doing something right, was his general takeaway. I, I have told my wife this multiple times, that clearly they view him as an existential threat to the status quo. And they are, are doing and breaking norms doing things that I think are highly unusual to try and prevent him from being the nominee because they think he can absolutely win. 
And I would argue he has very much a plan in place from day one to go after the administrative state. And people have called it revenge. It's not revenge at all. It's to set things right, to actually try and get us back on a path of restoring the Constitutional Republic and how things normal order, how things should actually run in this country. But they view that as extreme. They view that as a, a, a lot of different things. The only thing that it's extreme to are those whose positions and power will be done away with as you return power back to the duly elected representatives of the American people. Yeah, we we hire them, don't we? We hire them. All right. The, in, uh, in theory. In theory. And we got to bring that back to real. I, I, I just that's what infuriates me more and more is how much we are letting slip out of our hands as individual human beings every day to this massive uh, administrative state. It is sickening yeah. to me. It is frightening to me. Uh, so there we go. Um, that to me is the threat to democracy. Existential. Anything else. I, I will say this. Existent, the greatest existential threat to the freedom of the American people. It's not China. It's not Russia. It is an administrative state that's removing freedom of speech, free flow of information. And I would argue really infringing in a very significant way upon the rights of the American people. That's the greatest threat to our freedom today. Amen. Okay, the parlor game before we let you go. If Donald Trump gets the nomination, who's his VP? He has talked about Vivek Ramaswamy. Uh, nope. What do you think? No. Okay. Um, I don't like, I don't think anybody on that stage right now should be considered to be VP. Okay. Uh, I, I'm a huge fan of Kim Reynolds, governor of Iowa. Uh, Iowa, I, I, yep. I think that she has actually done a very good job in a lot of different things as the governor of Iowa. I know that Trump was a little frustrated that he thought she was too pro DeSantis. I think she would be a very good VP for a whole host of reasons. Iowa semi battleground. She would help with suburban women. I think she would soften some of the rough edges of Donald Trump. Um, if it's not Kim Reynolds, I'm out of Virginia. I like Glenn Youngkin. Um, I think Glenn Youngkin also kind of softens a little bit of Donald Trump. Uh, so those would be my yeah, two no, picks. Yeah, I, I, I love Glenn Youngkin because of what he's doing for parents. This is one of my, my, my key exactly. issues in America today. Uh, Christy Noem, is she not in this conversation? Not in my mind. I don't think she'd be a good okay. pick. First Why? of all, what, what's, the, well, what's the importance of South Dakota? If you're, gonna pick, oh. if you're going to pick a female okay. vice president, you want to pick on a whole host of fronts, in my mind, strategically thinking. Kim Reynolds fits that mold much better. Um, okay. And I, I think Kim Reynolds has got a great story, and I think she'd be a great advocate for Donald Trump. The question is, can Donald Trump get over some of his, uh, shall we say, disappointment with her being what he thought was too pro-DeSantis in some of the Iowa events? Uh, you know, if he's going to be short-sighted, that's going to be on him, right? I, that, it is. That's, yeah. 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 Very interesting. Kim Reynolds, we got lots of interesting predictions from you today, Ned. It's been an absolute we'll pleasure. I'd love to do Yeah, I'd love to do this again, check in with you periodically and have this discussion because obviously it's not ending today. And so much is going to develop here um, after we figure out who the Speaker of the House is and so on and so on. So would love to have you back. Thank you so much, Ned. Absolutely. Thanks, Michelle. And as always, at the end of every podcast, I suggest... I can't tell you what to do, everyone, but try to be brave and do good today in any little way that you can. And we will see you next time. 